Our scripture lesson for today is taken from John chapter 11. You can find that on page 1237, 1237 in the Pew Bible. John chapter 11, beginning at verse 16 and reading through verse 27. This is the chapter that describes the raising of Lazarus from the dead. We've considered a part of this chapter a few weeks ago. And now I continue our study of this passage, which I think is familiar to many of you. John 11, beginning at verse 16. Then Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. And many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary was sitting in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. As far as the reading of God's word, may he add his blessing to it. Beloved of the Lord, John 11 describes the great miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. It is the seventh of the seven great miracles that John records in his gospel that Jesus did during his public ministry before before his death miracles that revealed his glory. When we looked at the earlier part of this chapter, we saw that Jesus loved Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus, but even though Jesus received word that Lazarus was sick, he waited until Lazarus was dead before he began to go to them. And when he finally arrived, Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days, And we took note of the fact that Jesus did this so that he could demonstrate his glory by raising Lazarus from the dead. Uh, It indeed is a glorious event, a revelation of great power to be able to raise someone from the dead. And that miracle caused many people at that time to believe in Jesus. And uh, that miracle continues for the last 2,000 years to be a powerful witness to everyone who hears of it about the power of Jesus over death itself and has helped many to come to faith in Jesus. I'm sure that if we could talk to Mary and Martha and Lazarus now, they would express no regret over the suffering that they endured at that time, knowing how many people have come to believe in Jesus and had their sins forgiven and uh, have the, the blessed hope of the resurrection because of the suffering that they went through and the glory that was revealed by Jesus at that time. 
Well, now we want to look at Jesus' words to Martha and focus especially on the words, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. Uh, we want to take note first of the context of this statement and uh, then also uh, its uh, meaning. Now, the context is that it is said to Martha in response to something Martha said about the resurrection. Uh, Jesus had first said, your brother will rise again, and Martha responds, I know. I know he will rise again. He will rise again in the resurrection at the end of the age, uh, at the last day, at the end of history. Uh, she is a believer in a future resurrection. She wasn't the only one of her time to be a believer in a future resurrection. It was one of the distinguishing characteristics of the Pharisees as opposed to the Sadducees. The Sadducees uh, didn't believe in a future resurrection. The Pharisees did, and uh, Mary's, uh, Mar Martha's faith is similar, at least in this respect, uh, to what uh, the Pharisees believed. But we might wonder, why did they believe that? Where did this uh, uh, faith in a future resurrection come from? Where is this first revealed? Where, does, where is it first made known? Well, the Bible isn't real clear as to where it is first made known. Uh, it could be inferred from the very first promise of redemption in the Bible, Genesis 3.15, where God promised to uh, bring Adam and Eve back to his side. They had sided with Satan, but he says, I'm going to put enmity between you and Satan and bring you back to my side, and, and we're going to defeat Satan. And since uh, Satan has brought uh, death into the world, the, the promise of redemption and, and bringing people back to God infers that perhaps even the, the penalty of sin will be overcome and death will be overcome. And, and that's hinted at uh, by Adam's uh, faith. Uh, Adam, after the first redemptive promise, uh, named his wife Eve, which is the mother of all, of all what? Of all dying? No. Uh, death had come into the world, and uh, uh, the wages of sin is death. But he believed that she would be the mother of all living. That's what the word Eve means, the mother of all living. So he had, he had faith. He demonstrated faith in the naming of his wife after that redemptive promise, and the, 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 the name reflects his faith in the triumph of life over death. And so uh, we could say that resurrection is inferred from uh, the first redemptive promise. We, uh, we know that Abraham was uh, an early patriarch who believed in resurrection. We're told in the book of Hebrews, in chapter 11, verse 19, that he was willing to slay his son Isaac. He, he didn't actually do it, but he was willing to do it uh, because he believed that God could resurrect uh, Isaac uh, from the dead. Uh, the Old Testament saint uh, Job uh, believed in resurrection. We read in Job 19, uh, verse 25 and 26, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last... He will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. My flesh is going to be restored, or my flesh is going to be destroyed, but it will also be restored, because in my flesh I shall see God. Uh, in Second Kings 4, we read about a prophet named Elisha, who raised a Shumanite's uh, son from the dead. 
And in the Old Testament book of Daniel, in chapter 12, verse 2, we read of a uh, resurrection of both uh, the righteous and the unrighteous. And so we must conclude that uh, when uh, God gave his redemptive uh, promises to the early patriarchs, he either, he either told them directly or he gave them wisdom to infer uh, that uh, he, he, God, would overcome all the effects of sin and even rescue from death itself. Now, as mankind uh, spread out into the world and uh, some people groups moved farther and farther away from God and from uh, the covenant, uh, this knowledge, of course, of resurrection would uh, degenerate. I don't believe in evolution. I believe in devolution. Uh, things uh, degenerate and uh, go from bad to worse, and religion uh, became corrupted as it moved farther and farther away from uh, Israel and the covenant people. But in, in all the ancient worlds uh, that we have record of, there is evidence of some kind of belief in uh, life after death and, and some future reward. Um, people were often buried with things that they would need in the afterlife. And so uh, even today, uh, people uh, live as if indeed this world is not all there is and uh, are hoping for somehow, some way, everything will be made right again. Uh, in order to uh, deny that, you would have to say that uh, if there is no, no ultimate, no higher purpose to life than just our biological existence, if we're just chemical factories that live and then die, then uh, and there's no hope for the future, then there's no reason to live. Uh, you'd have to be a total nihilist to embrace that, and, and hardly anyone lives that way, even though they may deny the existence of God. Uh, the Apostle Thomas uh, flirts with nihilism a little bit in the first verse that I read to you when he said, uh, you know, well, let's go with him uh, and, uh, and die with him. They're afraid that if Jesus goes back to Jerusalem, where they uh, just uh, a short time earlier had wanted to stone Jesus, uh, for making himself equal with God. Uh, he says, if Jesus dies, all hope dies, we might as well die as well. You know, if there's no hope, why go on living? So if he's going to die, let's go die with him. Uh, I say he's flirting with nihilism, but uh, I don't think he embraced it entirely either. He too probably still had some hope. Well, the New Testament is quite clear that there will be a resurrection at the end of history, at the end of uh, the age. Jesus taught it in his confrontation with the Sadducees. You can read about that in Luke chapter 20. All the apostles preached the resurrection from the dead. Uh, the word resurrection is found 24 times in the book of Acts alone, which records many of their sermons. Um, in Corinth, there were those who denied the resurrection, so Paul wrote a chapter in 1 Corinthians 15 devoted to refuting that uh, idea that the resurrection uh, will not happen. And uh, he uh, mentions the resurrection in all his uh, epistles. The last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, especially in ch chapters 20 and 21, speaks of Revelation. And here, look, here, listen to Paul's words in 1 Thessalonians 4. Uh, he says, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. 
For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and with the voice of the archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise. The dead in Christ will rise. What a glorious promise. And so Mary believed in the resurrection at the last day. She believed it even before she knew anything about Jesus raising her brother from the dead. She believed it before Jesus was raised it raised from the dead. And you should emulate Martha. You too should believe in the resurrection from the dead. Uh, especially because we know more than Martha knew at this time. We know that the resurrection has already begun with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that he was uh, buried on Friday afternoon, remained in the tomb Friday night, all day Saturday, Saturday night, and Sunday morning, and was raised on the third day. He was uh, seen by his disciples, all of whom had trouble believing in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. They may have uh, embraced the idea of a resurrection at the end of history, but uh, in the course of history, no, that wasn't supposed to happen. And uh, they were incredulous. And it took uh, several appearances before it uh, really sank in, and he had to show them his wounds, and he had to eat bread, eat food in their presence to show that indeed he wasn't just a, a disembodied spirit. Uh, he proved to them that he had been resurrected from the dead. At one time, he appeared to over 500 witnesses at one time, and all of those eyewitnesses, uh, most of them had their, their faith in the resurrection of, of Jesus Christ uh, put to, to the test. Uh, many of them were commanded to renounce Christ or be martyred, and they accepted martyrdom. They are witnesses, like witnesses in a court of law uh, who swear to uh, tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help them God. They, they, they sealed their testimony, not so much with an oath like that, but they sealed their testimony with their very blood, uh, refusing to recant even though they were threatened and uh, put to death. Uh, being a Christian now means believing in the resurrection, and not just affirming it as a future event, but placing your hope in that future resurrection. Right now, you and I have only a down payment of the salvation that God has in store for us. But we know that when he appears in glory and uh, resurrects us from the grave, then we will receive the, the fullness of our salvation. And so we're commanded in 1 Peter 1, verse 13, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Some set their hope on attaining riches, and some set their hope on finding the right uh, girl to marry, and some set their hope on uh, building a family and uh, rejoicing in their children, and some set their hope on accomplishing great uh, works in the world uh, that will bring them fame and acclaim, and some set their hope on the golden years when uh, everything will be easy and you won't have to work so hard and you'll be able to rest on your laurels and so forth. And Jesus says, yes, uh, in this world, uh, be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth, but set your hope, set your hope on the grace that will be brought to you 
at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's where we will find ultimate fulfillment and joy, not in the things of this world that are passing away. Having that hope now also enables us to find the strength to live lives that are set apart for God, holy lives, lives dedicated to serving him rather than serving self. Well, therefore, it is in the context of a discussion about this future resurrection. It's it's in the context of that discussion that Jesus makes this startling affirmation. I am the resurrection and the life. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, first, he means more than just, I will be resurrected. Certainly he had been saying that, and he would indeed in in a short time be resurrected. Uh, He had been telling his disciples for some months, I have to go up to Jerusalem and suffer many things and be put to death, but I will be raised on the third day. Uh, Jesus indeed uh, believes in his future resurrection, but that's not uh, what he is uh, mentioning now. He's responding to Martha's faith in the resurrection by saying, I am that resurrection. I am the resurrection and the life. He wants Mary to progress, to move forward in her faith, to progress from an abstract belief in a future event to a personal faith in him. To move beyond a faith in an abstract future event to a faith that is directed to him. There will be a resurrection of all mankind, some to eternal life and some to eternal death. But if you want your resurrection to be a resurrection unto eternal life, then you have to recognize that you will receive it only in and through Jesus Christ. This is made clear by his next statement, the the next two statements in uh, verse 25, the second half of verse 25 and uh, verse 26, where Jesus says at first, whoever believes in me, even though he dies, yet shall he live. Jesus is referring to what he has taught earlier in John, that the moment we come to faith in Jesus, we have passed from death to life. All of us are born and conceived in sin. We are children of wrath. We are under condemnation apart from the grace of God and uh, worthy of death. But uh, the moment uh, uh, God begins to work in us by his spirit to regenerate us, he gives us a life, a life that can never end. And that life manifests itself in faith. Earlier in John's Gospel, it reads in John 5, verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Again, in John 6, verse 47, we read it earlier in the service, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me has eternal life. Or we could go back to John 3 in the very familiar passage of John 3, 14 to 16, where it says the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. 
What is he saying? He's saying that if you have faith in Jesus, then you have eternal life right now. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God did a work of grace in your heart by his spirit. He regenerated you. He gave you new life, and that new life has manifested itself by putting faith in Jesus. And so your faith is evidence that you have eternal life. That's why he goes on to say, everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Everyone who has been born again, who has regenerated, who has come to life and given evidence of that life by putting faith in Jesus, that person will never lose that new life. They will never taste death. It's true that our bodies are wasting away, and our bodies will disintegrate and return to the dust unless Jesus could return first. But what happens to our bodies is not what the Bible calls death. Death is to be utterly cast out from God. It is to be utterly forsaken by God to experience the withdrawal of all of his kindnesses. Even the most wicked people in the world today experience uh, beautiful sunrises and sunsets and uh, experience God's uh, uh, rain showers upon the earth. Uh, He causes the rain and the sun to shine on the and the just and the unjust alike, but in hell, all of those kindnesses are withdrawn. No believer, no believer will ever, ever have reason to cry what Jesus cried from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Nothing, not even the death of the body can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Now to live is Christ, but to die is better, to die is gain. And so Paul said, I desire to depart and be with Christ. He knew that the sting of death is gone. The death of a Christian is precious in the sight of the Lord because it's not a punishment for sin. It's taking that person's spirit home to be with him in heaven, to see him in his glory. Jesus said, truly, in John 8, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And so we have to be careful not to equate the, the disintegration of our bodies with what the Bible calls death. The wages of sin is death, but death is so much more than just the disintegration of our bodies. Uh, it is to be uh, cast out from the presence of God and from all his kindness and love. You know, there's a verse in, uh, in Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, that uh, says that uh, Christ has tasted death for everyone. Christ has tasted death for everyone. He he tasted it for us so that we wouldn't have to. I was listening uh, to a sermon this past week by uh, Alistair Begg, and he used an illustration that I thought was uh, interesting. He described an experience that, uh, that I've had, and probably you've had it as well, uh, of driving down the road, and uh, there's traffic in the opposite lane going in the opposite direction, and the sun is situated in such a way that the traffic that is uh, coming at you, uh, the shadow of those vehicles is cast into your lane, and maybe there's a, a large truck coming in the opposite direction, and its shadow is in your lane. And as you're driving along, it appears as if you have a collision with the the shadow of the truck. Uh, Now, that's 
not a terrible event uh, when it happens. It would be a terrible event if you had a collision with the actual truck, but uh, you don't have a collision with the actual truck. You have a, a collision with the, the shadow of the truck. And he said, that's it's kind of like death. Uh, Christ has had the, the collision, the tragic, uh, terrible collision with, with the truck itself, with death. He has tasted the real thing. And uh, because he has tasted the real thing, you and I only experience the shadow of death. We don't experience it in all its uh, horror and uh, all its pain and, and misery. Uh, he experienced it for us in our place so that uh, we would only know uh, uh, the shadow of death. Uh, the life that Jesus gives in regeneration, in the new birth, is a life that never ends. Now Jesus concluded this uh, conversation with Martha by asking her, do you believe? He's giving her opportunity to express her faith. It's interesting, Jesus does that in a number of places. You remember uh, when that uh, woman in the crowd reached out and touched Jesus, even though there was reason to hurry on to the home of the man whose daughter was dying. Jesus stopped everything and said, who touched me? And why did he do that? Well, he, he wanted this woman to give, give her opportunity to publicly profess her faith in him. That's important that we do that. Anyone who is ashamed of me, I will be ashamed of him, says God. And, and those who confess me before men, I will confess before my Father in heaven. And it's important that we we publicly profess our faith in him. And so he gives Martha the opportunity here to, to profess her faith. Do you believe? And she answers in the affirmative uh, that uh, she does believe. Yes, I believe. I believe you are the resurrection and the life. But she not only affirms that, she, she affirms why she believes that. I believe that you are the resurrection and the life because you are the the Christ, you are the Messiah of God. You are the one who was promised of old by the prophets who would come into the world. And you are the Son of God. What a wonderful profession of faith, a public profession of faith by which she brings glory uh, to Jesus. Now, this event is recorded and Jesus uh, Jesus' question is uh, before us today because he asks you the same question. Do you believe? Do you believe in him? Do you have faith in Jesus that he is the resurrection and the life because indeed he is the Messiah of God, because he is the Son of God? One way that you can know if you have faith is uh, by its fruit. And uh, one of the fruits of faith is uh, 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 taking away of the, the fear of death. Those who do not believe in Jesus are almost universally very much afraid of death. And so one of the marks of faith is when that fear of death uh, begins to go away. You know, the, the world, in their unbelief, uh, deal with the fear of death in, in a couple of different ways. Uh, one way is to uh, deny 
the existence of death, to pretend that it doesn't exist, to, to never mention it, never think about it. You know, uh, they don't make a will because if you make a will, you're acknowledging your mortality. You're, you're acknowledging that uh, you're going to die. Why is it so many people die without wills? Well, because they don't want to think about death. Uh, some people refuse to go to hospitals because that's where people die. And some people refuse to go to funeral homes because they don't want to be uh, reminded about death. And when there are social pressures on you such that you would be uh, embarrassed publicly, uh, lose face and so forth by not going to a funeral. Well, you go to the funeral, but you, you refuse to look at the body because uh, you don't want to uh, see that uh, death so stark. If you uh, talk to a funeral director today about modern trends in uh, secular funerals, uh, the thing that doesn't happen uh, hardly anymore is the viewing, uh, that's, that's not a part of modern secular funerals because people don't want to think about uh, death. And if uh, death does intrude um, and uh, you can't uh, get rid of the thought, well, then you have to, to dull your mind. And uh, the greatest uh, uh, resource in that regard uh, for dulling people's minds is alcohol. That's why they have uh, uh, what are called wakes. Uh, which is just an excuse to get drunk after someone has died so that you don't uh, have to think uh, clearly about uh, death anymore. Uh, one uh, funeral director told me that when he goes to uh, funeral director conventions, he sees two kinds of funeral directors, Christians and alcoholics. Christians and alcoholics, because... Uh, uh, if you're not a Christian and you're constantly dealing with death, you have to dull the, the fear and the pain and, and get it out of mind. That's one way that, that people who don't believe deal with the fear of death. Another way of dealing with the fear of death is to romanticize it and to, uh, to talk about death as just being a part of life, about the part of, uh, part of the cycle of life, uh, like a, a drop of water that uh, evaporates from the surface of the ocean and goes up into the clouds and travels around and then falls on the earth and through streams and rivers eventually makes its way back uh, to the ocean from which it came. And so uh, when a person dies, it's like a drop of water returning to the ocean only to enter the cycle of life again. And uh, they have this romantic picture about death. But neither uh, putting death out of mind or dulling the mind or romanticizing death really stands up as a helpful way of dealing with death when you're sitting in the doctor's office and he gives you the announcement that you have a terminal illness and you have to face the reality of your own imminent demise. Are you afraid of death? Well, maybe your faith isn't what you think it is. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. See in him that he indeed is the resurrection and the life. And everyone who lives and believes in him will never die. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved from death and no longer live in the fear of death. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you that he has come into the world to conquer sin and death on our behalf. We thank you that his death atones for our sin 
and that his resurrection proves that indeed all the sin has been paid for. We pray that we may put our trust in him, that we may uh, not just have uh, faith in a future resurrection, but that we may have a confident trust in Jesus to do for us all that we need to conquer sin and death. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.